0: This is a KTF Press podcast.
1: I have a question for you. Do you want to attend the Evolving Faith Conference from anywhere in the world for free? Evolving Faith is an online faith community with all kinds of events and book clubs and things that they do, gatherings all year round. And as they say, it exists to cultivate love and hope in the wilderness pointing fellow wanderers and misfits to God as we embody resurrection for the sake of the world. They have a conference that they've been doing for the past few years. It's in Minneapolis, but you can attend online. You can hear speakers like former Shake the Dust guests Dr. Amy Kenny and Dante Stewart, or writers from our anthology like Brandy Miller or Dr. Randy Woodley. Their first names rhyme, I just realized that. The conference is live on October 13th and 14th, but you can watch it anytime you want if you get the digital pass uh, between then and January 1st of 2024. And that ticket also gets you access to some other online events that are just for ticket holders. And you can get that whole $129 value for free. How? Between today and Labor Day, that's September 4th, become an annual subscriber to KTF Press or upgrade your existing annual or monthly or no membership to a founding member level membership. You get a free book if you do that one, by the way, the founding member one. And then you will be part of a drawing for one of three free tickets to Evolving Faith. That subscription, as you know, gets you the bonus episodes to this show, it gets you our weekly newsletter for free, and it supports everything we do at KTF Press, and it could get you an $129 digital ticket to the Evolving Faith Conference for free. So go to KTFPress.com and sign up as a paid subscriber today or anytime between today and September 4th and enter that drawing. All right. Let's get into today's episode. And that episode officially starts now.
2: I'm both a survivor, a survivor of intimate partner violence, and I have acted abusively in intimate relationships. And I think that my ability to say that out loud sometimes is still uncomfortable for myself, but Mm. allows people to think, well, well, dang, (laughs) if she's capable what have I done? And it's not, again, it's not to shame or villainize people in any way. It is about being honest with yourself.
1: Welcome to Shake the Dust, Leaving Colonized Faith for the Kingdom of God. I'm Cy Hoekstra. And I'm Jonathan Walton. We are so excited for you all to be here today. Uh, we're having a pretty serious conversation. Content warnings will be in uh, the show notes. Uh, we're going to be talking about intimate partner violence and abuse. We're excited for it because it's a very important conversation. And uh, we're talking about it as we try to talk about everything, keeping marginalized perspectives at the top of mind. Uh, and we're also going to be talking about how church communities are involved um, for good and for bad in, in intimate partner violence and abuse situations. Uh, very quickly before we get to that, if you like what we do here on Shake the Dust or all of our work at KTF Press, the best way to support us is to go to ktfpress.com and consider becoming a subscriber. Get the whole archive of our bonus episodes of this show. Get our newsletter where Jonathan and I send you media highlights for to help you in your discipleship and political political education, um, get the whole archive of that as well, and support everything that we do at KTF Press. Uh, and you can always go to ktfpress.com slash free month if you want to start off that subscription with a free month. All right, Jonathan, can you please tell everyone the incredible guests that we have today? Absolutely. Today, we have uh,
0: Dr. Maxine Davis, who's a second-generation activist who's passionate about discovering how to end violence, perpetration, in romantic and intimate relationships. She studies people who act abusively and interventions that are designed to help them change. Dr. Davis earned an MSW and MBA at Dominican University and completed her PhD in social work at Washington University in St. Louis. Most of her research uses a community engaged approach, centering the voices of historically excluded racial groups as equal partners. She has presented her research to several prestigious national conferences throughout the United States and to local go- nongovernmental organizations internationally. Her independent and collaborative work on the experiences of racially minoritized populations has been published in several noteworthy academic journals. The driving force behind her passion is fueled by a spirit of hope that with proper support and resources, people who have acted abusively can become committed to peaceful living. She's qualified (laughs) and I'm grateful she's here. Dr. Davis, thank you so much um, for being on the show today. We appreciate you.
2: Thank you. It's a pleasure. It's an exciting opportunity to get to talk about something that people really don't like talking about that often. Yeah. It's always an a, um, interesting introduction at soirees and cocktail parties. What do you do? I see violence. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. <laughs> Right.
0: Right. And not and not the big violence like this violence. Right. right? Inter-
2: interpersonal violence. And actually like how much more interpersonal can you get than for the most part the person that you're sharing a bed with a lot of times. Um, and mm. it it's a topic that people are often uncomfortable uncomfortable talking about because they either have experienced it or have um acted in abusively in ways that they aren't willing to recognize uh, to themselves first. So that's what Mm -hmm. I find makes people the most uncomfortable is that this hits very close to home, Um, whether they witnessed Mm -hmm. it during childhood and are on a journey to try to prevent it in their own uh, romantic relationships in adulthood um, or whether they're currently facing a situation um, that is embarrassing a lot of times to talk about.
0: hmm mm-hmm. And so can we start super basic, right? Like what is intimate partner violence and abuse um, or IPVA, we'll, we'll call it during our conversation a lot of the times. And why use that term instead of domestic violence? And are there any misconceptions about IP, IPVA that we should just Throw out the window right now
2: those are great questions so when I talk about the topic um, in community and scholarly spaces I often interchange the terms um, intimate partner violence and abuse with domestic violence just so that people are all on the same page and knowing what I'm talking about historically mm. language has been something that has been used as a tool of power um, and it's something that is also um, it can be very empowering to take back control of. So domestic violence um, and and the colloquial language that has surrounded it evolved from what was originally called in the scholarly literature, wife beating. Well, we realize and know that not all intimate relationships involve a spousal relationship and the gendered aspect um, and the heteronormative aspect that this can't happen to men um, and that this only happens to women who are wives. Um, And this evolution of language has been something that I've um, really uh, been passionate about reclaiming. And so a lot of times what you'll hear is domestic violence because that's what the public is used to calling it. And one of the reasons why domestic violence as a term is problematic is that it takes the ownership away from the community in terms of why this social problem exists. And it contextualizes it only to um, the intimate space of the home or that which is domestic and closed and centered. Um, And that's not really the case. This is a community and public health issue. So it really. Needs to be talked about in a more intentional way, um, and in a way that is specific to what type of violence that and abuse we're discussing. So when I t- when I say domestic violence, when I say intimate partner violence, I'm not talking about abuse towards children, um, like mm-hmm. like that would involve the child welfare system or something like that. Um, I'm talking about that which happens between folks who are romantically and intimately engaged. Mm -hmm. Um, I recently, uh, in the last four or five years, added purposefully violence and abuse because um, oftentimes people consider the definition of violence to only be physical. Mm-hmm. Whereas we know from, and this gets into you, the, the other part of your question, what is, what is intimate partner violence and abuse? It's a pattern of behavior that um, is degrading and demeaning and um, centered around maltreatment of an intimate partner. And that can look like all different, that can, look, can take form in many different types of ways. It's not just physical violence. It's not just hitting, slapping, pushing, um, psychological violence. And as we'll talk about later, um, a particular unique type of abuse that I study is religious-related IPV um, can be detrimental to people's physical and mental health. Um, and that's not something that is often discussed. Is the the repercussions of psychological abuse, economic abuse, spiritual abuse, um, mm-hmm. and manipulation in a way that takes control of a person's mind and behaviors? Violence, in my definition, is forcing your will upon someone else. And this is a a a decolonial space, which I'm excited to be a part of and, and have this this platform. So sometimes uh, violence is not always bad. Violence can be a tool of resistance to engage in liberation. But mm-hmm. in the context of intimate relationships, it is. this is a place where you should feel the utmost freedom. Um, and so forcing your will upon um, your intimate partner is what I define as violence, or abuse.
1: Hmm. You mentioned the religious aspect of your work. So within the area of IPV research, you have a couple of specific areas of focus. Could you tell us what those areas are and and why you chose them?
2: Absolutely. So I intentionally focus on um, figuring out and discovering and evaluating programs that work mostly for Black and Latino men um, as part of work that um prioritizes uh particularly particularly black and Latinx families um this passion that I have emerged from witnessing and experiencing the uh the lived the lived survival experiences of of most often black women um and this was black women that I saw in faith communities in in Um, black churches. Um, And that inspired the passion that I have to figure out the question of not just quote unquote, why does she stay? But the question I had growing up was, why does he do that? And what does it take to change? Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Because when people do separate or divorce or um, disengage from one another, and in their intimate relationships, they oftentimes get a different partner. And it's not that the cycle of abuse ends, but it just transfers from one person to the next because we're relational human beings. Um, Mm. And I think one of the things that um, I've been kindly criticized for is my compassion and empathy that I have for people who act abusively. I think that vilifying people dehumanizes them, and if we do mm-hmm. that, there's really no road to accountability and change.
0: You should say that again for people who missed it. When it <laughs> you know, they, they were like,
1: "I'd swipe by that." But go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I that that question I was going to say is deceptively simple, but it's so powerful. Why does he do that? Right. That question. And I I used to be a defense attorney in the child welfare system, actually. So which you've already Mm. mentioned. And so I had a client when you're a defense attorney, in the child welfare system, you have clients who are both perpetrators and survivors of intimate partner violence. And it, it was just amazing to me how many people were unwilling to ask, why does he do that? Because you think that would be the obvious question. Why does he do that? So that we can then figure out how to stop it but so, so often the instinct is just punish, right? Just hurt the person who hurt somebody else. And, you know, doesn't matter how much we're ruining their lives or the lives of their families or their communities. Um, and so I, I really, really appreciate that question.
2: Yes. And it's, mm-hmm. it's been one that has, has driven, um, a, a quest for figuring out what it will require for change But also one that, again, allows for that holistic perspective of uh, the holistic and humanistic perspective. Yes. Um, And allows for investigation into what I mean, what we know from from the research is that most people who've acted abusively are survivors of trauma. They're themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, And so part of the answer to this question of why does he do that? It's multifaceted. And I say, I say he, but this could be any, any gender and across genders. One mm-hmm. um, of the things that, uh, again, I'm, I'm criticized for a lot of stuff. Cause I just, I just, <laughs> I just say how it is. And I'm really, you know, yeah, I'm feminist, but I'm also humanist. So, mm-hmm. um, I, and I love black men unapologetically, mm-hmm. So um, mm-hmm. I do recognize the abuse that's perpetrated by female-identified folks in relationships, and if you don't do that, you you also miss an entire entire group of of women um, in same gender loving relationships as well, because this feminist idea that only men are violent. It doesn't allow us to address intimate partner violence across relational context. And if we don't, if if we just have this very narrow idea of what domestic violence is, we really are missing the most marginalized um, perspectives and experiences. So I think that it's important to name and recognize that women act abusively too. Um, the reason why I think um, you get this gendered language comes down to injury. And when we look at the data, I hate to to dichotomize gender, but but that's how the data has been historically collected by men and women. Um, if you look at if you look at the national data, women are just as abusive as men. However, when you look at the injury and homicide rate, women are disproportionately injured, um, physically and disproportionately killed um, in terms of the um, severity of of physical violence. And that's why you get a lot of this uh, gendered uh, language because of the physical impact and homicide. Um, Black women, particularly, Um, Again, another reason of why I focus on Black communities is because, uh, and I'm a Black woman, Um, we are disproportionately um, victimized. And there are many reasons for that. But when you look at the experiences, one in three women are surviving domestic violence or intimate partner violence. But when you look in in Black communities, that rate goes up to 45% of Black women who've experienced this. And that's and that's on the low end because it's underreported. Mm. When you look at the uh, homicide rates within the context of intimate partner violence, um, Black folks represent 14% of the population, but 30% plus of uh, women who are killed are in intimate relationships are Black. So this <sighs> is a disproportionate um, rate that requires attention and specific culturally relevant intervention. Um, and there are many reasons. I think folks can check out the work of Hillary Potter, who's a sociologist and who has studied um, Black women and intimate partner violence long before I have um, her book is entitled Battle Cries. Black women are always fighting and <laughs> fighting for survival, not not fighting for the the fun of the game, right. but um, mm-hmm. this also is not exempt from the home. So, as as much as we are engaged in battles on the street, we are often engaged in those in the home as well. And it's it's a very complex situation because white feminists have endorsed criminalization of of domestic violence or criminalization of intimate partner abuse um, and engagement of police as a solution. Uh, Black women from since the 70s has said, nope, that's not gonna work for us. That, that one right there, that mm-hmm. isn't that. Can you please not do that? <laughs> <laughs> um, but yet and still um, we have uh, disproportionate arrest rates and disproportionate conviction rates for many reasons.
0: As you're talking, I'm I'm thinking about the pushback that you get, um, and I'm wondering if you could talk more about where you think that resistance comes from. Hmm. Um, so you said the you know resistance to compassion. I use that word compassion because in my in the space that I was in for a long time, fighting labor and sex trafficking, the the pushback for me would be like, well, what do you mean you're going to actively reach out to a pimp or a trafficker Mm -hmm. or someone who's exploiting someone else like what do you what do you mean we're going to talk about that and maybe group ourselves into that group because we could like you were saying enforce impose our will on someone else through our purchasing through our exploitation through the systems that we're a part of right um and so i wonder for you like where you think the resistance to that compassion comes from and then i also wonder where you experience resistance to, or if you experience resistance when you say I'm going to focus on black and brown communities?
2: Mm. Because I often say that I'm unapologetic about who I partner with and and why, what communities I um, study and uh, engage with. I haven't gotten pushback about Why I sent her black and brown voices, but this, uh, but I think that is partially because I'm so intentional about being unapologetic about it. So it kind of sets a stage of don't ask me, don't don't try (laughs) it. (laughs) This is not up for debate. Yeah, this this (laughs) is this (laughs) is not up for debate, and 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 this is not up for any type of discussion in in terms of why, why this is important. And I think I don't, I have the privilege of saying that because so many of my um, predecessors have done mm. a lot of work to highlight the importance of health disparities. And um, that's a fairly historically fairly recent investment that people have been willing to make in terms of shifting their perspective on why that's important. however, the the, the point of why compassion is, is something that people have a difficulty um, in, embracing, I think is because people like to otherize, and um, as I mentioned, people like to punish as a tangible and easy way to to distance themselves. And I think I think psychologically, when folks are able to distance themselves from a unfavorable behavior, it allows them to think of themselves as not being able to be a perpetrator of violence. I think this is the biggest challenge that we have in our society is refusing to see ourselves in unfavorable lights. And so I did a TEDx style talk for the biggest uh, social work and research conference recently, um, in which I share, I'm both a survivor and a survivor of intimate partner violence, and I have acted abusively in, 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 in intimate relationships. And I think that My ability to say that out loud um, sometimes is still uncomfortable for myself, but allows Mm. people to think, well, well, dang, (laughs) if she's capable, what have I done? And it's not, um, again, it's not to shame um, or villainize people in any way it is about being honest with yourself. And one of the questions that I ask in that talk is, what is the worst thing that you've done to an intimate partner and share that with somebody? And if you can't share that with somebody, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. then I think it's it does a disservice to creating a peaceful environment in whatever intimate relationships that you have. Um, This phenomenon of intimate partner violence and abuse, people really like bento box style social problems. When I say that, people (laughs) like very neat, very neat. This is a victim. This is a perpetrator. This is a survivor. This is an abuser. This is Mm -hmm. a this is a batterer. Um, Mm. And if you'll notice, I avoid those terms and I use language like people who have acted abusively or people who have caused harm in an intimate relationship um, because these very neat, discrete boxes don't really exist in relationships. And I'd say that from a data perspective, when you look at the types of violence and abuse that happens, people like to think of a very specific type of um, domestic violence that's called coercive control. And that's one that is also referred to as intimate terrorism. You think of what you see in the movies as one person being dominating and controlling over another to the point of fear and one partner is in control and has power over everything. And yes, these do exist and these are the most dangerous types of um, constructions of intimate partner abuse, but there's Mm -hmm. other types. And the most common form is one in which people fail to have healthy interactive um, uh, ways of dealing with conflict And they resort to, for the most part, what they saw as children or what they um, see in society as being socially acceptable of how to deal with conflict in relationship. And you get this um, mutual engagement of abusive behavior. So take the physical violence out of it and imagine people calling each other names back and forth in a heated quote-unquote mm-hmm. argument. That is domestic violence. That is intimate partner violence and abuse. However, we have tricked ourselves socially into thinking that that is just a toxic relationship. And that's, that's the language people are using now. Um, mm-hmm. It's And, and it, I think there's a very different um when you look at when we look at the data in in that view over 90% of relationships have involved intimate partner violence and abuse in some way. And that staggering mm-hmm. report is um is something that we really have to be honest with about how often this is happening. And and yeah there are different niche types of abuses that people In marginalized communities, experience, for example, people with disabilities are have an extremely higher rate of being victimized um, in in a way that really furthers uh, the health detriments um, because people are folks folks use the most vulnerable parts of their intimate partner, unfortunately, against them, and this is also. Mm Um, part of why I got into studying religious abuse because w- of what I witnessed in terms of Black women, particularly Black women's experience of going to churches and um, and their um, reliance upon faith as a form of strength, that being attacked because that is something so um, special and important.
1: So I, I want to get deeper into that for sure. I also just want to say you are you're you're like doing my heart a lot of good right now <laughs> like this, <laughs> this 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 all all this stuff about about not being um judgmental and bento box kind of thinking which is another way of saying just sort of the way the criminal justice system thinks right there's there's defendant yeah. and there's victim that's it there's nobody yeah. else and there's you know the the victims are never perpetrators themselves and the perpetrators are never victims and that's it's just clean cut um and I, uh, I just, I don't know. I, I, cannot express how much I appreciate <laughs> the depth of of compassion and honesty you're willing to go to the 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 ability for you to say and thank you for sharing this here. You know, I have been both a, I have both received and and given intimate partner violence. I think that is a a radical and also radically important thing for for all of us to be able to think about openly and honestly. And I just, man, I appreciate it so much. Um, but on, on the track of religion in particular, can can you just explain to us a little bit about how you theorize, you know, thinking about Black women in church and how that relationship uh, is is a crucial factor in intimate partner violence situations and um, why you think about it that way?
2: Absolutely. This, this didn't come out of... Um some brilliant idea that I just came up with. This comes out of the lived experiences of black women for, for Mm -hmm. many years. And it comes from growing up in a house with a mother. Maxine Johnson is phenomenal. And I'm a junior. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, A a junior at a time when my mom named me after her at a time and people like, you can't do that. And she's like, yes, I can. before it was like the end thing, right? Um, but my mom is openly discusses her experience of survivorship, and she's one of the one of a primary primary and first community partners. She's also a huge community activist. So my mom is a woman who's been on CNN for in it, discussing her community activism um in in ways that epitomize what it's like to be a strong black woman and at the same time she for many years was surviving intimate terrorism specifically that particular type of abuse and and she went to churches for help and was met with varied responses and i mm. saw this across my childhood um but she went to churches as as many many Black women do, and actually as many people do um, in Black and Latinx communities. Um, and one of the problems she faced was a what we now see is a, a all too often response of not recognizing what was being presented as domestic violence or abuse um, and encouragement for her to engage in spiritual intervention, like prayer, or um, to be a better model, quote unquote, a model wife. And I get my mouth from my mama. So <laughs> she was not quiet about it. She went to a different church, went to a different pastor, went to different ministers, like, this is happening. Somebody come get this boy. <laughs> um, some and, and boy, in the sense of my stepdad you know, is is a boy at heart, just like I'm. A, I'm a girl at heart. With he has unresolved trauma that he never dealt with. Um, so I don't say that in a in a demeaning way. I say that in a loving way. But this is something that too often happens: is that faith leaders are not equipped to respond in um, an appropriate way that recognizes what they what what they encounter as domestic violence to the point of involving social service intervention and, and qualified support services. Um, and they it's often dismissed or um, again, um, only referred to be dealt with in, with spiritual intervention. And I'm a Christian and I, prayer works period. Um, So I say spiritual intervention purposefully instead of saying, oh, just pray about it, which is what a lot of times um, the literature discusses. But that's a side note. (laughs) That's a a side note. Yeah, my mom prayed for my stepdad, but he also needed particularly men of faith um, to intervene. And that is not what he was met with in terms of forces of support. So um, as an abolitionist, I think that the engagement of police, especially when you're talking about non-criminalized forms of abuse, which are, ju- again, as I mentioned, um, just as detrimental and survivors describe as often, what you'll often hear is the physical scars heal. heal. The mental scars and emotional scars are long lasting, longer lasting. Mm-hmm so it's not necessarily that police needed to be called or engaged um and and police were called and engaged when it got phys- physical and my mom endured injury but there could have been other community led interventions through faith um communities that could have addressed the issue in an accountable and compassionate way but this again mm-hmm. this failure i think and and now we know, at least from the research that I've done, um, qualitative research that I've done, part of the reason why um, my mom was met with this response is because the pastors that she was going to were probably active acting abusively in their own relationships. So how are you going to check mm-hmm. somebody on something that you doing yourself?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Right. Lord have mercy. <laughs> um, so this may not be intuitive for everybody. What is the link between racism, and intimate partner violence? Like, how can you draw those clear straight lines for people who might be lost as we're having this conversation?
2: Thank you for that. We actually recently published a study in a clinical journal that used uh, national data to make exactly this link. And the link between experiencing racism, if you think about experiencing racism as trauma, that has... A detrimental effect on your mental health. And people who have poorer mental health, like depression, anxiety, PTSD, have a higher um, likelihood of perpetrating uh, intimate partner violence. And we looked at this in a sample, particularly of Black folks. um, And what we found is that as racism experiences of racism went up, um, poorer mental health. Um went up and uh was racism had a direct um impact on higher instances um of de- of intimate partner violence perpetration. if you think about the impact of any other form of trauma um you look at um folks who have served veteran populations um they have a higher rate of acting abusively and perpetrating violence because of the trauma they have endured and the impact that has on their ability to appraise situations and engage in um, de-escalating manifestations of how to resolve conflict. And part of that is related to emotion regulation. Um, So you see a higher instance of people jumping from basically zero to 10 Um, and that inability to regulate their own emotion is a direct result of unresolved trauma. So some of the work that I do is also, um, with a group in the Boston VA, um, and where they have rolled out this program called strength at home. That's a trauma informed, um, intervention for people who've acted abusively, um, and is one of the few that I stand behind as as having evidentiary support to work. But mm. it was developed for veteran populations and has now been um, now being tested in civilian populations. And I'm part of the team that's working on it to make sure that it meets the unique needs of um, Black and Brown folks in terms of recognizing racism as trauma. And when I looked at it, it's de- it was developed by a, a group of, of dope white folks, good intention, white folks. Casey Taft <laughs> is amazing. But I was like, Casey, I read your book and you ain't talking about racism as trauma. We got to get this together. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a as an early career scholar saying that to somebody who's established, um, <laughs> you know, a lot of people wouldn't. I don't you know, matter. You know, Casey Taff is a person. You know, I mean, I think that <laughs> I think that 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 you know having some of that just realness to be able to talk to people and not be intimidated by oh this is the status quo or this is not even status quo this is what has been done for many years. Um, you know i can't question it or something like that no that's what rigorous scientists do is you know and and that's what act, that's that's the activist lens that i bring is question question what has always been done and question the status quo and question authority i mean it sometimes gets me in a little bit of trouble but that's <laughs> the, the beauty of academia is that i get to study what i'm passionate about and it's it would be unscientific of me to notice something having a gap and not ask or inquire about how this can be better and and point out why it's it's problematic to miss identifying racism as trauma and to talk about mm-hmm. um, what it's what it means to live that in a in a, a reoccurring basis because the. Clinical tools that are used to describe and define PTSD are based on trauma as a one-time discrete experience that is no longer happening or that you've survived. And racism for Black folks in particularly, um, the national data describes that we experience the most racism in a U.S. context um, on an ongoing basis um, has detrimental impacts. Um and occur is reoccurring. So it's not just a mm-hmm. thing that one survives one time and then has to process, but it's occurring on a daily basis across many different contexts.
1: I feel like there's a sort of parallel there where you're kind of breaking down boundaries again of like, this is not so neat and tidy that we need to talk about. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. Just broader, more complicated things.
2: And so the the interventions, again, that white feminists in the first wave feminist movement of the 70s introduced as, okay, what do we do? This problem is happening, uh, uh, domestic violence. What do we do? Engage um, the criminal carceral system Mm. is one that was built as a response to the needs of white women. Similarly, the partner abuse intervention programs that were designed and developed as the treatment groups that people, that people mostly men were um, put into after being convicted of domestic violence were designed for the experiences of white men. They were never designed for the experiences of Um, black and brown. Men And so the way that I arrived at, okay, we have to do these groups differently and we have to think about different interventions, different partner abuse intervention programs is because I used to be a group facilitator in those groups that men were mandated, court mandated to attend and from jump, from day one, I was like, "This is it. This the best we got. This ain't gonna work."
1: Mm.
2: <laughs> because when and again, most of these groups that I served in Chicago were mostly of black men. Um, when they did begin to talk about their experiences of surviving violence, you know, their community violence or uh, childhood experiences or ongoing relational violence. Um, They were discouraged from talking about that experience of survivorship, um, and it was considered a a way that they used to deflect, but in all actuality, it was part of a a therapeutic, what they thought was a therapeutic experience, but in all actuality, those groups are not and were never designed to be therapeutic environments, which is a problem and why I endorse Casey's program, Strength at Home. Um, because it is more of a, it's a psychoeducational program, but it's also um, built up upon principles of having a therapeutic alliance and seeing this type of work as therapeutic, which is necessary for change.
1: Mm-hmm. You're talking about batterers intervention programs, right? That's what they're usually called? Yes. Yes. Okay. So just, just in case anyone's heard of them or like has heard of someone having to go to them um, when I, again, when I was a public defender at those programs were kind of the bane of my existence. And all, all of my clients that were that were men and perpetrators were, were black and brown as well. And so it was like, this is just, it's accomplishing nothing, but they keep getting required to do it.
2: And we did, we published a meta-analysis, which is a compilation of all of the studies that have ever been done about batter intervention uh, programs and did a comparison to no treatment. Um, and we again found additional evidence that these programs don't work and when i when i say what works i mean when you look at rearrest rate as a definition of success yeah they're they're rearrested at a lower rate if they go through these programs but when you enter victim and survivor report in the question of did the abuse stop no mm-hmm. the answer to the question is no the abuse didn't stop mm-hmm. so what do people do People do non-criminalized forms of abuse,
1: Mm -hmm. and I and I want to highlight. You just said you compared batterers intervention programs to no treatment whatsoever, (laughs) right? So, like, you're 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 talking about something that is ineffective, even when compared with doing literally nothing.
2: Yeah, yeah, Yeah. and that we've known this. We've known this for thirty years, actually. (laughs) Um, But again, this is something that that people are. Uh, Resistant to challenging because, like, okay, well, what else are we going to do? Design design an alternative complete design a completely different way of of engaging when 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 someone cries out for help um, for intimate partner violence and abuse and avoid this conveyor belt style one size fits all model, Mm. which is Mm -hmm. what we currently have in progress. So it doesn't matter if somebody is um, two times less likely to get rearrested If the abuse continues, the health impacts for survivors is untouched.
1: Mm-hmm. Hmm. So let's get practical about those non-carceral, you know, non-carceral alternatives um, to prison. Because I think a lot of times when people hear – you say that you're an abolitionist or hear other people talking about, you know, reducing the power of the police situations like this interpersonal terrorism that you've been talking about, or just other kinds of, uh, you know, explicit physical violence are the sort of things that are real hangups for people. So how are we going to actually deal with this without prison? A lot of people don't have a framework or an imagination for that. So can you, can you talk to us about programs that work and why and how they work?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I'm in the process of evaluating a um, program and have have done different types of evaluative work um, with a, a group that serves mostly um, undocumented uh, Latino men in Chicago uh, of all different types of um, Hispanic um, backgrounds, but mostly Mexican Um And it's called the men's group. It's based out of, uh, originally it was based out of a Catholic parish. Um, And the program came into existence because women were going to the priest describing um, instances of violence and were saying, I don't, and then this is a a common report is that I don't want, I don't want to not be with my husband or partner. I just want the abuse to stop. And so if we actually listen to what survivors want, instead of imposing punishment and um, criminalization as an immediate response, that gives us a window into intervention that could be useful and helpful and gives us creative solutions for what could work to stop violence and abuse. So that's one um, area that i I tend to lean to in terms of, okay, what are we going to do about this? Is to ask survivors who have ex- are experiencing or who have experienced what would be ideal in terms of how to intervene here. Um, mm-hmm. The there's three things I want to hit on, so that's one. The second is purposeful investment into, ins- purposeful investment instead of into police response into um social service that gives survivors, for example, housing and access to financial support mm-hmm. um, that would allow for the the safety that they're seeking um and the independent decision making and empowering decision making capabilities to guide mm-hmm. their lives. Um I also am a proponent of the arts, so I think that the use of music as intervention is really powerful. And one of the things that I'm working on now is, and that study that we that we did that it's in, that is in getting ready to be submitted for publication is a playlist of hip hop songs that. That condemn domestic violence and endorse healthy relationships. When we talk about hip hop, we often talk about, well, folks often talk about its use of denigration of women and and endorsement of violence. But actually, hip hop is is and has for a long time um, been a conscious source of of violence resistance, and this is mm-hmm. not this is mm-hmm. not different in terms of its discussion of. Um, the problematic use of violence in relationships um, so these sort of resources that could be developed if they were invested into um, could be a way of providing alternative uh, solutions and, and engagement in um, engagement in conversations that occur earlier than later um, i focus specifically Specifically on um, violence and adulthood and uh, children is not my ministry. I know where my I know where my gifts and talents are, and working with <laughs> working with children is not my ministry. Um, but I do endorse and support these early intervention programs that talk about healthy relationships on the front end. Um, but God has just given me a passion to uh, develop and evaluate interventions. For abuse that happened in adulthood. And when we look at the data, we know that the most severe and the most, I I think, most critical age range to intervene in is 18 to 29. That's Mm -hmm. where you see really high rates of um, fatality, high rates of injury. Um, And so I'm constantly asking myself, okay, for 18 18 to 29-year-olds, what's what speaks to us I'm 37 so but I can still say us
1: <laughs> um,
2: and for me i for me that that would be music and that would be my faith community. so investing in an in additional training of faith leaders um, to be interventionist um, and to know when couples treatment is appropriate and when it's not um, for domestic violence. Um, and to also have intentional songs curated or circulated around these topics um, is, I think, a worthy and noteworthy um, point of intervention. Um, we also got to make sure that we're actually measuring what's happening. And so I recently uh, recently developed a scale um, that measures religious abuse in the context of intimate partner violence. Asking questions like, "Has your um, how often or to what degree has your partner used relig- use scripture um, to justify abuse towards you?" or "How often or to what degree um, has your partner for said that you had to forgive them on the basis of religious ideas?" Um, and these type of questions are something that mm. if we don't it, if we can't measure a problem, then we can't even evaluate if it's being changed or not. So, I think measurement is is a key area um, to invest in as well.
0: You you talked about the bento boxing that the the legal system likes to do, and faith communities like to do the exact Mm -hmm. same thing. What's the conference? What's the book study? We can do this in six weeks. No training. No discipleship. Deliverance happen. We're gut. We're Mm -hmm. good, right? Mm -hmm. And so, what can faith communities do better when it comes to creating? peace in intimate relationships. Jesus said, "Blessed are the peacemakers," right? And so like the the peacemaking, like what are what are some ways that you have seen or suggestions you have that we can be peacemakers mm-hmm. in intimate relationships. And I say that as a faith leader who's had to do that and as a husband who tries wants to keep peace in my house. You know what I mean? So getting called in to intervene and being someone who does not want to continue perpetuating violence against imposing my will on my
2: partner? Yeah, it's a good question. And I, honestly, I don't know. I'm figuring it out for myself. I'm mm-hmm. figuring it out. I think mm-hmm. I think formal training has its place. So yeah, um, knowing the dynamics and the cycle uh, that tends to happen within domestic violence of there being an abusive incident, then there being like this honeymoon phase um, where they're person is like flowered with, with sh- showered rather with flowers. Um, oh, I'm so sorry. This will never happen again. But then this tension building and then boom, something else happens. And it's this rap- this perpetuating cycle. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. on a basic level, knowing that violence is not just physical is a first step and talking about all the manifestations of how that occurs um, is a first step in understanding the complexity of abuse um, and of maltreatment of an intimate partner. But I, I hesitate to to have a one size fits all sort of recommendation list. I think this this differs from community to community. Um, one thing that I've that I've seen that is helpful is this ability for faith leaders to be vulnerable and and talk about their own experiences. Mm -hmm. And this is something that I'm figuring out myself on what this, you know, what is, Mm -hmm. how much do I disclose? Um, How much do I, and, and when I was married, I'm recently divorced, I was married for 15 years, but what led to that is is realizing wait a minute this is not what i want my children to see and and that's the experience a lot of people have but i'm figuring out how much do i disclose and how much do i keep for myself and the mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. sacred space of what was my relationship it's a mixed bag um i don't i don't know and i'm figuring it out
0: I recognize within the question, even me caveating the creation of bento boxes. It's hard not to create one in your answer, yeah, <laughs> but your invitation but your invitation to the messiness of it, yeah, is exceptionally helpful, yeah, yeah
2: it is it is very messy, and I think advocates for a long time discouraged couples counseling um when there was any type of intimate partner violence and abuse. But again, we did a study on that and found that actually, um, couples treatment when there's domestic violence involved, as long as it's not this terrorism type. Um, mm. and I realized I only provided two examples, but violent resistance is another type. And that's when somebody's fighting back, um, mm. we see that more in black women than in white women. Um, but those are three different types of domestic violence that you'll see intimate terrorism what we call common couples um violence which is quote unquote fighting um and then violent resistance which is somebody this is this is what you see of like a woman stabbing her husband and you're like what the hell happened oh, I'm sorry the language but you're like what mm-hmm. what the heck happened with that and it's like well she's been c- controlled and abused for for 10 years she fought back but mm-hmm. then she gets Arrested and convicted.
1: So, yes.
2: this, <laughs> this, these are just three different types, um, uh, that that occur. But I, I think knowing though at least those three different types, and knowing that if it's if it's a fighting or or common couples violence, that actually couples treatment by someone who is trained in the, in and has some domestic violence training could be beneficial. And this is something I, it, the the domestic violence folks who are going to listen to this episode are going to be like, Oh no, she didn't recommend. It. Yes, I did. Because <laughs> the data says that we should. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and I mean, th- this is written into policy. Side knows this is written into, into policy that in many, many States, couples counseling is prohibited as a treatment plan when there's domestic violence perpetration. Um, And yes, it should be avoided when someone is engaging in intimate terrorism, Um, but it could be very helpful. And the studies show that it could be very helpful to reduce intimate partner violence. Um, And that's one of the options that exist, um, especially in the context of people who have the request of I don't want to leave my partner. I just want the abuse to stop. Okay. So yeah, mm-hmm. individual counseling, right. I, I do engage that. That is, that's helpful. Um, but this couple's uh, treatment could be an option um, that I think probably faith leaders are engaging in anyway, um, but just not with the the formal domestic violence training yes. that they need in order to have a fuller perspective of what could be going on.
0: Right. They're, we are engaging every day without the training, without the resources, without the support, and often perpetuating the nonsense we've been given and then distributing that.
1: Yes.
2: When we interviewed Black clergy uh, leaders, that's what they asked for, actually. And there's been this misconception that um, Black church communities don't want to have formal don't want to engage in and partner with social services. And that's a fallacy.
1: This conversation has been so great. I so appreciate the uh, expertise and the vulnerability that you brought to it. I, you know, I mm-hmm. the, the just the amount you've been willing to share is um, a gift to us and all of our listeners. Um, and uh, where can the listeners uh, hear more from you? Where can they find you or, or your work?
2: Sure. Um, I upload uh, free copies of all of the the studies that we publish on my website, uh, Um It's under reconstruction. I, I lost everything um, a couple of months ago, so it, oh, be no. patient there. Um, but the, the PDFs of all the studies are um, available there. Um, listeners can also follow me on Twitter, where I've had a very lively and engaging uh, conversation. Um, I also have a YouTube channel, um, Dr. Maxine Davis, where you can see some of the uh, talks that I discussed, um, short 10 minute ones or longer 30 minute um, discussion of the related topics. And there'll be more to come on those platforms.
1: Very excited about clicking on. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone go check it out. We will have links in the show notes. Uh, Dr. Davis, thank you so much for being here today.
2: Thank you. Mm,
1: Thank you, ma'am. Everyone before we go, thanks for listening. Just a quick reminder, KTFpress.com, consider becoming a subscriber. It's the best way to support what we do Uh, and uh, gets you access to our bonus episodes and our newsletters and uh, supports everything that we do. Uh, we so appreciate you listening today. Our theme song is always is Citizens by John Guerra. Our podcast art is by Jacqueline Tam, and we will see you all in two weeks.
2: When we arrive as and you welcome us children home. arrive as citizens, and you welcome us children home.
1: I mean there was a lot there. I think John, I think she since she just Answered a lot of your next question it might be interesting to just ask if there's anything more on that subject but it is and so I'm going to ask it and then ask a
2: tangent
0: okay. and I'll see where that rabbit hole goes
2: And I'm the I'm the daughter of a minister so I can
1: talk <laughs>
0: <laughs> Um you can feel free Yeah